Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, November 15th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Y-Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. So next week is Thanksgiving, and uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the town, the city of Hollywood basically shuts down on, uh, uh, you know, big uh, holiday weeks. All the executives uh, take off, maybe even early, and we're, we're starting to see that today because the news has kind of slowed down to a, you know, a very slow rate. So we're working on less uh, interesting stories than usual, but uh, we do have some opinions to to, to give you on these stories. Uh, so let's jump into it. Uh, let's start off with uh, Filmstruck, which uh, it was announced was uh, being canceled. Uh, you know, there have been petitions and now some filmmakers have uh, gathered together in support of trying to save Filmstruck. H.J., tell us about it. 
Yeah, so there was a huge uproar when um, Warner Brothers announced that it would be shuttering Filmstruck last month. And uh, a petition arose online, which, as we all know, never really leads to anything. But then uh, bigger names such as Guillermo del Toro and other acclaimed directors started to put their throw their weight behind this online petition. And now he and several other big-name directors have banded together to plead with Warner, Warner Media Group uh, to save Filmstruck. And this includes uh, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, Christopher Nolan, which is a big deal because he's, you know, the physical media 70-millimeter guy. I don't even know if he owns a computer. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't own a cell phone. I'm I'm surprised he even knows what a streaming service is or yeah. you know wants to support one at least. Yeah, when you have like not only Nolan but big but huge uh legendary filmmakers such as this, then you know that Filmstruck has a, plays an important part not just in Cinephile's heart but in uh so, so many renowned directors and they pen not just one but two letters to um uh, Toby Emmerich at Warner Brothers Pictures. He's the chairman at Warner Brothers Pictures Group. And uh, they've uh, ple- pleaded to him to save Filmstruck. Now, you know, this petition that kind of sparked this whole thing only has 50,000 sub- uh, signatures, which I think is like less than half of the amount of subscribers that were, were at Filmstruck. So it's not like this is like a huge groundswell of support that like, you know, oh, you know, so many people just found out about this and want Filmstruck, you know, maybe we should keep this thing alive. Uh, but these filmmakers, I, I mean, I guess this is, you know, making some waves. Do, do you think, HT, that this could, you know, change the mind of Warner Brothers? I feel like it could. This is definitely like the biggest groundswell of support that Filmstruck has seen. And these are big names. Like I think if you have Scorsese and Spielberg banded together to try to save something, that will make at at least some Warner Brothers executives listen to to reason. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like this maybe could make a difference. Even um, people who speak mostly with their money could you know, have be influenced by uh, household names like Spielberg and Scorsese who have huge, who have big clout with uh, Warner Brothers. So who knows? I feel like this could be the tipping point, but maybe I'm just being optimistic. I feel like if I was Warner Brothers, I put together a site being like, you know, subscribe now, almost like Kickstarter. Like if we can get to, you know, you know, 200,000 subscribers by, you know, the end of the year, we will keep Filmstruck alive or something like that. And I feel like that's that, like an ultimatum. <laughs> no, but like, I feel like that might work. Uh, ben, I, I'm wondering, like, you know, it doesn't seem to me that it would cost a lot of money to keep Filmstruck alive. I mean, they own the rights to a lot of these movies. Uh, what do you think it's going to take? I feel like the, you know like ht i may just be uh being optimistic here but i feel like enough huge filmmakers that warner brothers as a company would want to be in business with are on board here that it might actually get them to stop and, and reconsider what they're doing the thing that i'm wondering and because we don't know what their plan is what the the warner media group's plan is we know that they're going to be launching their own app uh or streaming service 
sometime soon. I, I'm not even sure if we know the exact date of when that is supposed to be happening. But there's been some speculation that maybe, you know, the stuff that would be on Filmstruck would be like sort of rolled into that yeah. other new service whenever that comes around. So I'm wondering if maybe... I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why uh, Warner Media Group hasn't publicly re- publicly responded to this yet. That's the thing. Is like, if they have a plan to maybe at the end of the year or uh, whenever announce that, oh, by the way, all of this stuff is going to be part of this new service that we're launching and trying to get people excited about that. I'm not sure why they wouldn't capitalize on all the attention that Filmstruck is getting, or this campaign about Filmstruck anyway, is getting right now to try to point those people to this new service like you're saying peter just like open up you know subscriptions early or you know do something to sort of capitalize on it it seems like from a business perspective there's a lot of uh, potential money being left on the table by just sitting back and not doing anything right now so i'm I'm sort of baffled as to what their strategy is here but uh i i hope that you know, a ton of people, you know, there are people like Barry Jenkins and Reed Morano. And I mean, tons of people have signed on to this thing. And you can read all the names of these people at the, the article in Slashfilm. But um, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of people that, like I said, Warner Brothers would be lucky to be in business with. So uh, I don't know. What do you think, Peter? I think you kind of uh, nailed it here. I think it is about this streaming service that's going to come from Warner Brothers either next year or the year after. I think that they're not ready to announce plans for that streaming service. I think it's stupid. Uh, you know, I, I, I think all this content is going to be on that streaming service. And I think it's stupid for Warner Brothers to, you know, just halt Filmstruck now. Like, why not keep that alive until, you know... You do the streaming service, and then maybe you can convert some of these, you know, subscribers over to the new streaming service. Like it, it just seems so weird to halt it the way the way they ha- they have. I feel like it would be, I don't know. I I know that we don't see how much you know a streaming service costs to run all that bandwidth, mm-hmm. the you know the software developers, the you know tech support, the all that stuff. You know, I, I'm sure it costs more than I'm imagining. But I just can't imagine that, you know, with them owning the rights to all this content, that it really costs that much to keep Filmstruck alive until they make this big move. And I, I'm pretty sure that all this content is going to be on that service. So it's just... Yeah, and it just, uh, like, part of me, I'm, I'm leaning into conspiracy theory territory here, but part of me has wondered <laughs> if they did some of this on purpose to sort of get the you know the headlines about all of these directors you know they, they assumed probably that a lot of outcry would happen so? if like... they i don't know that that's a that's a theory like they could they could have yanked it just to return it until they are ready to roll those services into the new streaming service that they have but uh, i don't know that, that i mean there, i have absolutely nothing to base that on um but it seems like I wouldn't put it past a huge corporation to pull a move like that in order to generate free publicity, basically. Um, but it would, I don't know, I feel like it, the entire thing would just sort of rub their subscribers the wrong way. So I'm not sure what the, the ultimate end goal would be from even employing a tactic like that. So uh, maybe I should I should stop, uh, <laughs> See, stop I, theorizing. I, I'm usually the one with the insane conspiracy theories here, Ben. <laughs> I know, Peter, you're and, rubbing off on me. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, I just think they were oblivious. I I don't think that this is any conspiracy theory. I think um, 
they didn't realize the the kind of uh backlash that was going to come from this and uh i don't know it'll be interesting to see if if they they do decide to save it in some way and uh guys we we, congratulations we spent 10 minutes talking about filmstruck (laughs) (laughs) see we were able to turn a story on today's slow news day into some uh worthwhile discussion um let's move on to amazon who uh they have signed a deal with blumhouse to produce eight exclusive feature films from a group of diverse filmmakers uh pen what do we know yeah so amazon has just closed a deal with the people at blumhouse productions to create eight movies that are going to be directly uh, uh they're basically going direct to amazon prime and they are coming from diverse filmmakers. We're not entirely sure who those filmmakers are going to be yet, but this is interesting, especially in the wake of Jason Blum, the uh, founder, producer that runs Blumhouse. The the wake of his comments uh, not too long ago where he was uh, really like hammered in the press by talking about how there weren't that many female directors out there who were interested in making horror movies. And he, uh, you know, instantly apologized and realized what a, a dumb statement that was. And he's talked about... And we talked about on the podcast not too long ago how he, you know, has been having meetings with female directors and trying to, uh, you know, get, uh, I guess, incorporate some more diversity behind the camera in Blumhouse productions. So this seems like uh, it's almost like a, a perfect answer to people who are hoping for more from Blumhouse in that regard. And uh, just a, a cool another cool bonus for people who have Amazon Prime, like, you know, you're getting eight new movies that are being made specifically for that service uh, with the, the Blumhouse name thrown behind them. Um, the official press release says that these are going to be elevated thrillers slash darkly themed movies. Um, and Chris Evangelista is bummed that they're not just outright saying horror movies because that sounds like what they're trying to get at without actually using that word. But uh, we'll see what this turns into. So these movies aren't going to be connected in any way. They're just like a series, uh, I guess, a deal, like a production deal. Yeah, like, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- that is pretty cool. It's pretty cool that that is happening. Um, and it's weird to actually see someone announcing that they're making eight movies for a studio. It, it, like, it almost felt like – I remember when this was announced, we were, we were talking about it in the chat. We were like, wait, is this a TV show, eight mm-hmm. episodes? It was a little confusing. Um, but I guess yeah. – that- I was also going to say it's it's worth mentioning too that these – you know, it, th- I think this is the first real batch of projects that Amazon has worked on that are going directly to the streaming service that are feature – Uh, films because most of their movies have gone to theaters first that's been the big difference between amazon and netflix uh before netflix really started you know trying to get into the awards game and stuff like that so uh amazon theatrically this year they had suspiria and beautiful boy and both of those movies have not really performed that well at the box office so maybe this is a way for them to potentially save some money on distribution costs and just you know make stuff that that just goes straight to that streaming service and serves that audience directly instead of, you know, hoping, hoping to reach out to a more general crowd. Yeah. Uh, Blumhouse Pictures is, you know, a master of making films for next to nothing. 
uh, actually, if you t- talk to people in the industry, they don't uh, pay that well. You know, they, they, they get through with loopholes and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, it's uh, you know, they make these films kind of almost independently and then they're distributed through big distribution. And uh, it's almost it's almost crazy because a lot of their films like the advertising budget is, you know, many multiples, maybe even hundreds of times what the cost of their the films are. So it's like um, it, 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 it's it's uh, it, it makes sense to me to to make some stuff direct for like a streaming platform like Amazon, because then, you, you know, you can pay spend minimal on uh, advertising and mm-hmm. you, you could put more money in the actual content itself. So um, and I'm excited to see some uh, up and coming directors getting a shot uh, at something. So that's kind of cool. Um Amazon has also announced that they are ordering Bosch season six. Uh, this is the detective series that takes place in Los Angeles starring uh, Titus Welver. Is that how you pronounce it? I think Welliver. Yeah. Welliver. Yeah. Um, I watched this show. Uh, by the way, Bosch season five hasn't even aired yet. Uh, and they have also they've already like signed on for Bosch season six. Uh, th- this is. Um, I think the longest running show in Amazon history at this point, at least for drama. And uh, I watched the show. It's based on a popular book series by Michael Connelly. It uh, is. I feel like it's very hard to convince people to watch the show because the advertisements, if you like, I see billboards for this. Like whenever there's a new season, there's billboards around LA for it. And it just like has, you know, uh, the main actor's face and uh, backdrop of Los Angeles. And it's like the most boring looking thing. It looks like, you know, something maybe your dad would watch um, in the trailers. It look you know, it, it's kind of like these uh, just like a hard boiled detective story in modern day Los Angeles. And it's very hard to sell with the trailers, too. But I, I I'm not saying Bosch is great television but it's very binge worthy and very enjoyable and uh, so what what makes it better than you know like an ncis or one of those shows that that is on like a major network well i've never watched ncis so i don't know even (laughs) what that really is but uh, i'm assuming that's like a case of the week kind of thing right i think so yeah yeah this is one case over the season so it's almost it's in that whole era of tv that we're getting um it almost feels like a feature or you know a a movie uh you know in a television series uh sized package Mm -hmm. so they're they're taking these books by michael Connolly, which are like each a uh you know a there's a, a mystery in each one but there's also like an overarching you know throughout the thing you know there's stuff going on with Bosch and you know there's a mystery of like uh how his mother died and there's stuff going on with his family and stuff like that so that it continues throughout the stories but it, it's it's uh every season is its own unique case that um he follows and uh I don't know, Ben, I actually think you might enjoy it because it, it takes you to places around Los Angeles that uh, is kind of unique and uh, you might not uh, visit and see. Um, it's I, I feel like we're getting a lot more shows like this. Like I, I think I first noticed this with Dexter where like, you know, that first season of Dexter, which I don't think was matched by any of the 
seasons after that was based on that first book. And mm-hmm. uh, because of that, it, like, it really... I feel like the way television usually works uh, with the writer's room and stuff, they're kind of planning as the season goes on. And I feel like because they're adapting these books, it, it almost f- feels strength. Like the plot is strengthened and it doesn't feel like they're just taking twists and turns as like they're going on with mm-hmm. the season. Does does that make sense? Uh, yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And I know you don't watch, but I feel the same way about Game of Thrones. The early seasons adapt George R. Yeah. R. Martin's novels like pretty, pretty, you know, they they hew pretty closely to what Martin wrote on the page. And I feel like they're stronger seasons because of it. But um, but yeah, I know what you're talking yes, about. I agree with you, Ben. <laughs> no, I have seen the early seasons, so I, I, I also do agree with you there. I, like, I, I do feel like there is. I don't know. I, I'm kind of loving this age of TV that we're adapting books into a television series and just having come off, you know, watching Fantastic Beasts 2 in theaters. HD, you haven't seen it yet, have you? I haven't. I get the feeling it's going to infuriate me. And I'm not yeah. really prepared. I, I I won't spoil anything. Keep the secrets, hashtag, or whatever. <laughs> um, and um, But I, I kind of am more wishing that they just remake the Harry Potter series like on this new Warner Brothers platform, I would love to see them remake the Harry Potter book series with each season being a, you know, a book like, you know, eight episodes for the first book. And it, then you would actually have the room to, you know, tell all of the the stuff in J.K. Rowling's book. And I, I, I would much rather than that than this uh, Fantastic Beast series, which is uh yeah, this latest episode infuriated me. I'll talk about it on the water cooler next week. But, um, okay, let's move on. To, oh, wait. Actually, first off, Ben, any interest in Bosch after my my, uh, my lackluster pitch? I mean, it was a fairly lackluster pitch, Peter. Uh, no, I, I am, yeah, I'm vaguely interested. I enjoyed Titus Welliver on Lost. I liked him in uh, his small role in the movie uh, The Town with Ben Affleck. So, I, I mean, I haven't seen him as anything where he's been a leading man. So, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. It's just, it's one of those things where, like, this it's too not much enough. TV. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not enough to get me to subscribe. You know, it's one of the. I think I'll. What will probably happen is, I will end up subscribing to Amazon Prime because I'm not a subscriber yet. I will subscribe when the new Lord of the Rings show comes out because I'll I'll have to watch that, and then I'll probably just add Bosch to my queue at that yeah. point and go through it like in the background when I'm not doing anything else. So I'll probably get to it. It'll just be like three years or something see i'm kind of jealous because i'm kind of on the at the point that i'm searching for shows that have like a backlog of seasons that i can like binge for like a month does that Mm -hmm. make sense like and i feel like i've i've gotten to all the like kind of big prestige things the only thing that people have suggested that i have not dived into is uh um uh the americans which Mm. oh yeah i haven't seen any of that either yeah i've seen the first season i love it a lot i just got overwhelmed with how many shows that are going on right now. I don't really understand your position, Peter, because every time a new series comes out, I'm like, oh, there's too much to watch. (laughs) No, but I'm just saying, like, I I, want to have, like, something that, like, you know, has begun and almost is, like, ending, like, something, like, whole that I, like, because I feel like Uh, uh, there's, like, a lot of shows, like, I feel like nowadays what happens is a series comes out on Netflix and I binge it in a weekend and then I feel like, 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 like it's, it's over and it's empty. Like I want to like have a longer, prolonged journey 
with a with a story if that makes sense and if that be be that like you know five or six seasons of a show that take me a month to get through uh i don't know (laughs) (laughs) does that make sense to either of you it does yeah yeah it makes sense yeah. I see how it's that's getting more and more rare, especially if you've already started checking off, you know, the, the best ones going down. You're you're eventually going to run out of stuff like that because that's a pretty specific set of criteria at this point. Yeah. And I feel like uh, as much as Jacob keeps on p- pitching me uh, ER, I just don't think I'm going to dive into ER. <laughs> I mean, you know what HG is going to say, right? Watch Doctor, Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Who. I know. I know. But, like, that's more episodic. I want something more serialized is what I'm looking for. It's a very specific set of criteria here. I guess you could always go back to The Wire, The Sopranos, if you haven't seen those. Like, the classics, you know? See, I've seen both of those, so... Anyways, okay, never mind then. I don't know. if anybody out there has a not that they know what I have seen and what I haven't seen, but if there is something that is probably out of the norm that has like, you know, a bunch of seasons that is probably worth, you know, you know, binging my way through, send your suggestions to Peter at Slashfilm.com. And if there's any good suggestions, I'll mention them on a future podcast. I know uh, we've talked about this way too long, but something just popped into my head that I know has a lot of seasons. Have you seen Cheers yet, Peter? I have well, yeah. When it originally aired, I, I lived okay. in I, I I am originally from outside of Boston, so that was like a big thing there because it supposedly took place in Boston, even though it wasn't really filmed there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm, again, that's not like that's more episodic, right? Yeah, I guess so. It yeah, yeah that's man. Yeah, you're uh, <laughs> you're narrowing the window. I, I like serialized stories. I don't know. Okay, let's move on. Uh, just like uh, Amazon was buying a bunch of stuff from uh, Blumhouse, Bad Robot has announced six new movies. Uh, ben, what is going on here? Yeah, we don't know where these movies are going to end up because J.J. Abrams uh, and his Bad Robot Productions have a distribution deal with Paramount right now that's going to end fairly soon. And Abrams is looking for a new home, uh, a new distribution home. A lot of people are speculating that it might be at Disney because that's where he's he's working on uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, obviously, right now. So we'll have to see where these movies end up. But anyway, his Bad Robot Productions has picked up six different projects that they are uh, are developing and they have released and this sort of a rare move for them they released descriptions of these projects and sort of like uh, i guess are getting people prepared for <laughs> for these new uh, bad robot productions that are coming the one that i am the most excited about is an untitled thriller from megan amram who is a writer uh, and a comedian and she is responsible for the writing on a ton of shows that you listeners have probably seen and loved like parks and recreation and Silicon Valley children's hospital. And right now she's working on the good place. She is uh, consistently one of the best things about Twitter. She has been for like almost 10 years at this point. And she was uh, nominated for an Emmy for a web series. She created called an Emmy for Megan uh, earlier this year. And which, which she is, is hilarious. Have you watched yes. this? Web yeah, series. I have it. It is pretty funny. Yes. Uh, it's basically all about her trying to game the system. And she realizes that all you have to do to be nominated for uh, to win an Emmy or, or I guess to be nominated for an Emmy is to create a web series that meets like very, very small 
um, <laughs> you know, criterion. Like you have to have like eight minute episodes. And so basically she just creates this show that is like nakedly and blatantly about her trying to win an Emmy just so she can have the award. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's worth checking out, I guess, if you haven't seen it. Um, but she is like a terrific comedian and, and writer. She's responsible for like the Jerobean Bear Me episode of The Good Place earlier this year, which I loved. And um, she's writing a thriller that is a female-driven horror allegory. So uh, that is exciting. We don't, I mean, in typical bad robot fashion, that that's about all the information that we have at this point. But um, I'm really excited to see what she can do as a solo screenwriter, you know, outside of the the collaborative writer's room environment and um, and tackling a, a big movie like this. This should be um, really, really awesome. Um, does anybody else have any uh, relationship with Megan Amram properties? I do not. I just. I just really like her Twitter brand. It's hilarious. And I do, I've watched only the first episode of, of an Emmy for Megan, but it's, if this, the same brand of like self-deprecating humor is in this uh, horror thriller, whatever it is, I will gladly watch it. And, and, yeah, and, and her Twitter, like, I know she's probably best known as what, like a TV writer? Yes. Yeah. But she has... I think over a million followers on Twitter because she's just that hilarious. Uh, yeah. So if you haven't checked her out, check her out on uh, Twitter. Don't let her uh, Twitter photo scare you away. <laughs> she's like doing um, some kind of like weird face in it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just do a quick rundown of the other uh, bad robot projects that are in the works. There's a movie called the steps, which is a twist on a possession story. There's one called the seven sisters of Scott County, which uh, comes from Courtney Hoffman, who is the uh, costume designer of movies like the hateful eight and baby driver. And she directed a, not safe for work western short called the good time girls which i linked to in the article and you can watch um she's directing this movie the seven sisters of scott county that is about moonshine trucking and sisterhood so that could be cool uh an untitled ben Schifrin thriller apparently ben Schifrin is the guy who wrote nine lives which is that kevin spacey christopher walken body swapping cat comedy that came out in 2016 uh this movie is going to be a contained time travel story the one that he's working on so uh, again that's super vague but very bad robot ish uh there's also a movie that is being described as clerks for a new generation called everything must go that is being written by elisa mcquillan and bobby hall who is also known as a rapper named logic and hall is going to star in that and then finally there's a movie called only the lonely which is described as a science fiction romance uh and yeah that, that's the uh, the bad robot slate as we know it right now uh the steps is uh is pitched on an original idea by stefan who was the editor of 10 cloverfield lane and he's an editor on star wars episode nine he's the guy that edited like probably any trailer that you loved uh, in the last few years, like he edited the well, the Star Wars trailers for Force Awakens, he was involved with all of those, mm. and he's uh, won a bunch of those. Uh, what are those trailer awards? You went to it a couple years. Yeah, back. the the Golden Trailers, Golden Trailer Awards. Yeah, he is amazing, and I I think he's eventually going to break out as a as a filmmaker, and uh, maybe with uh, maybe with this one. So, um, very interesting. Okay, let's move. Uh, well, actually, before we move on. Uh, we don't know where Bad Ro Robot is going to end up. Um, I, I, I think we wrote an article a couple, like, last week about how, you know, a bunch of the studios were kind of vying for uh, Bad Robot. That included mm -hmm. uh, Disney, Universal, and Warner Brothers. 
So I'm curious now that you've heard like this, the slate of projects that JJ Abrams and Bad Robot are working on. Where do you think they, they, they best fit? Because I, you know, I was kind of excited about the prospect of JJ Abrams and Disney because I, you know, I love Disney. I love JJ Abrams. And, uh, and, you know, they're already working together with Star Wars, but these projects don't sound like Disney films. Yeah, they really don't. Um, I, I think they kind of sound like universal things to me. Um, and, but I, I don't know. That's just like based on the identity that Universal has created over the past few years. Um, all of these studios are, I mean, if you go back and look at like what Warner Brothers was doing between like 20, I don't know, 2008 and 2013 or 14, they were like, in my mind, the best studio that was working. And then they just had like this huge drop off in quality. So there's always this sort of rotating um, cyclical pattern with all these studios in terms of like which ones have these hot streaks. Um, so I don't know, th- these just in terms of like the identity of the studios, these sound more like universal movies to me. And it's, it's kind of like this ineffable thing. I can't quite put my finger on why it is that they sound like universal properties, but, uh, that's the, the one that jumped out to me, but I, I don't know if, um, the ultimate decision about where Abrams is going to go is going to come down to, you know, whether or not these projects fit in with that, you know, with, with that specific uh, distribution company or whatever. It would be interesting if Disney, like if you made a deal with Disney and he ended up kind of like being the big producing partner for 20th Century Fox. Like, I I think that could be cool. Mm, Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, uh, let's move on to uh, the Avengers and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, We've often wondered why has it taken Nick Fury so long to call Carol Danvers uh, Captain Marvel? Uh, We saw... I guess spoilers for Avengers Infinity War coming up. At the end of Infinity War, we see uh, Nick Fury actually call her with this like uh, futuristic pager thing. You know why? Why didn't Nick Fury call her during the Battle of New York while the Chitari like opened a wormhole and were like att- you know attacking the biggest city you know in, in uh, this country? HT. Why? So this is explained in the Captain Mar- Marvel Prelude comic, which is going to be coming out um, and hitting shelves February 19th, 2019. And in the first issue of this Prelude comic, uh, we get a glimpse at um, the moments leading up to uh, Nick Fury and Maria Hill's uh post credit scene that we see in Avengers Infinity War. So they these two are reeling from the fallout of the Avengers sort of dissolution following uh, Steve Rogers and Tony Stark's uh, huge battle. And um, Maria Hill um, ad- advises Nick Fury to, prop- to potentially uh, call upon another hero they have on retainer. But he refuses, saying, nah, if we do our job right, we'll never be in a position to- of having to call her. Make sure you keep an eye on the raft. Got a feeling our guys will need a little assist kicking the door open, which is a really vague way of saying um, and kind of fancy way of saying they have her as like a last ditch backup plan. And um, the writer for this comic book, um, uh, Will Corona Pilgrim, explained that, um, quote, Carol's the biggest gun you've got and Fury's never want to waste a silver bullet. So if he's finally making that call after all this time and after all he's faced along with the Avengers, then he's truly seeing the situation as a last resort. And this kind of like flies in the face of what happens with the Battle of New York and Avengers. That does seem kind of like a, 
a big event that would be seen uh, as a last resort type of situation. But things, things uh, were very dire. Like New York was getting dire. destroyed by like alien warships and. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like um, I guess it was it was just a matter of him like just seeing himself disintegrating to finally call to finally call upon her. But um I you, you know what that... we need is we need the uh you know the George Lucas style special edition of Avengers where we we see you know Nick uh, a shot, insert shot of Nick Fury like opening the glove compartment taking out the futuristic pager and like putting his finger on the button and be like <sighs> and like waiting there like maybe should I <laughs> <laughs> Well I think it kind of actually makes sense to me because other than you know Brie Larson not being cast yet in the role of Captain Marvel when Avengers came out um it's that film was all about bringing the team together. And I think Fury was really intent on kind of bringing them together, not only with kind of engineering the tragedy of, um, well, not engineering, but kind of emphasizing the tragedy of Coulson's death with the, um, with the cards, um, but also just kind of like keeping that delicate balance by not bringing in anyone else. That's, that's sort of my reasoning behind it. It makes sense to me. And I know it kind of messes with the canon of the, of the, Marvel Cinematic Universe a little bit like why didn't they bring in um, uh, Captain Marvel when you know the president of the United States was being attacked in Iron Man 3 it's all kind of loose when it's all connected like that so it I think this is a good reason and like enough of a something to go on while we go into Captain Marvel next year yeah I know people kind of had problems with this with um oh my god I'm forgetting which film it was but after Avengers Kind of like there was a couple of the the Marvel solo films and like there was, you know, world, big world things going on like. Um, like Throw the Dark World. Yeah, Throw the Dark uh, World. Yeah. Aliens were there again. Yeah. And like it, it's like, you know, why didn't Thor call the rest of the Avengers? And I feel like, you know, in the comics, you never like really think about that, even though they all exist in that world and they're all friends and, you know, they, they're a team. Like, you know, it's just their solo, it's that comic and it's solo adventure and sometimes, you know, you'll see people from the other comics get involved. But, like, I don't know, for movies, it, it, it does make you wonder why they aren't there. Like, I feel like they need to come up with better explanations. Yeah, I think for now it's just the fallback of, of having... Uh, this big cinematic universe and big stars that they can't pay for every movie. It's just kind of that consequence of being loosely connected like that. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure we'll learn in Captain Marvel what happens to her at the end of the film. I'm sure, you know, because obviously that takes place in the mid nineties and uh, she leaves earth and goes somewhere. Right. (laughs) We we assume. So we'll, we'll learn, uh, you know, maybe there's more to this that we don't know. But uh, let's move into our last story, and that is this uh, crazy Jack Black documentary, The Insufferable Gru, which I actually thought was a joke when you posted this in the Slack channel, Ben. <laughs> uh, but w- what is going on here? Like, why are people? Why should people be interested in this documentary? Yeah, so I thought it was a joke as well. Uh, there is, I got a press release today about a documentary called The Insufferable Gru that stars Jack Black as, uh, I mean, he's playing himself. It, it's a documentary about a filmmaker named Stephen Gru who is based wait, in wait, Utah. Wait, to be clear here, it's, it's a documentary, not a mockumentary. So Jack Black appears in an actual documentary. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Think. Um, yes. I, I mean, as far as I can tell, and I've watched the trailer, so it seems I'll read the synopsis. The insufferable Gru follows filmmaker Stephen Gru, age 41, a self-proclaimed auteur narrowing in on his 200th film in 20 years. Uh, his body of work of outlandishly awful genre films has managed to attract admirers like Napoleon Dynamite's Jared Hess and Jack Black, but the Utah-based director has never made a dime off of his work, leaving his wife to provide for their family of four small boys. As Gru attempts to make his latest opus an elf-human love story, his narcissism threatens to prove his undoing in this entertaining look at low-budget guerrilla filmmaking. So that's the uh, description, and I was like, oh, okay, Stephen Grew is not a real person. It's just this <laughs> fictional character that was made up because that sounds ridiculous. And this whole thing is going to be sort of like a meta mockumentary kind of thing that looks at, you know, uh, themes like creation and, and low budget filmmaking and just is, you know, sort of has a laugh at the whole thing. But upon doing a little bit of research, it appears that Stephen Grew is a real person. And the work that he has produced is... Uh, Guys, it's it's laughably bad. It's it's up there with like Tommy Wiseau, um, that level of stuff. You know, if you've seen movies from guys like Wiseau and like Neil Breen and stuff like that, those those so bad they're good movies. Uh, if you're a connoisseur of those types of films, you're gonna want to add Stephen Grew to your list of of people to check out because this dude's work is um is really out of control. I embedded a couple things that he's done in this piece for his last film, and then I watched the trailer for the documentary which is uh is out and the documentary is going to be coming to theaters and uh, on video on demand in december so people will have a chance to actually watch the doc but uh jack black is he managed to get jack black to appear in this movie about this elf human love story and uh and that's basically the the documentary follows the production of that movie and and sort of how this guy managed to do that and and <laughs> what kind of filmmaker he is and how delusional he is about his own talent level. So um, <laughs> I, I would highly recommend if you if any of this sounds interesting, go to this page on Slash Film and, and check out some of these videos because they're uh, they're pretty jaw dropping. You know, what's sad about this is that this guy has made, what, 200 films? I mean, you quote unquote films like I, I looked at his IMDb and there's a lot of stuff there. But um, I mean, it's all like the kind of thing where <laughs> where it's, it's basically just him and a bunch of his friends shooting stuff in his backyard and they call okay. it a film. So, But it, I'm guaranteeing you there's probably going to be more people watching this documentary than probably the 200, you know, quote unquote films combined. That That is that's kind of sad. Right. Like, you know, let's put aside like how uh, the quality of the, you know, these movies and stuff like that. But th this is a filmmaker. You know, he's an artist trying to tell stories and he believes, you know, th this is his passion and his dream in this documentary. That's probably going to be mocking him is going to get more views than all of the the product that he's produced over the last you know 20 years combined. <laughs> So the conflict that you're describing, I experienced sort of in real time as I was going through this story and learning more and more about this person. I saw the work, the early work that he did and, and some of the, the videos that he's made and sort of laughed at them and then instantly felt bad for laughing because of the reason that you just described. But then I watched the trailer for The Insufferable Grew, this new documentary, and 
he re- I mean, it's called the insufferable groove for a reason. Like this guy <laughs> really is narcissistic to a level that um, that makes it, in my mind, OK to laugh at him again, because it's like if he's that, that delusional, then uh, then I have no problem. You know, it, it's like he <laughs> I wonder, if that, the, I wonder if that it, characteristic is why we can laugh at Tommy Wiseau or even Neil. Yeah, Green. I think like, so. I think that has something to do with it. It's like because otherwise it's just sad. Right. Like that's what you're saying. It, it yeah. you know, if you if the person um, is trying and failing and then it's just sad. But if they're trying and failing in a way where they feel self-righteous or, you know, arrogant or anything like that, even though their talent level is clearly not up to the par that they believe it is, then I feel like that's the the difference between, um, you know, watching something with pity and watching it and being able to be entertained by it. What is that book uh, that claims that if you do something for, uh, oh, Outliers by um, Malcolm Gladwell, that claims that if you do something for I think a thousand or ten thousand hours yes. uh, of practice in anything will make you you know an expert, a master, a master at it or something. Yeah. Uh, looking at this guy, he probably has spent over ten thousand hours on this, right? Uh, I guess so, but yeah, his uh, his mastery is very much in question. I think. So point. so yeah, this documentary might prove outliers as a uh, outlier. So, uh, yeah, um, Ben, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. HD, where can we find you? I'm also every day at slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. You can find me at slashfilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today on slashfilm.com and linked in the show notes. Slash Home Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. I'm assuming it's going to be a slow news week next week, so we might need some questions. So if you have any questions, if you need life advice from Chris, if you have questions about movies uh, that you want us to answer, if you have questions, you know, what are our favorite uh, movies about animals, whatever, send it to Peter at SlashFilm.com and I'm guessing next week we'll have some time to answer those on the air. Please go to our iTunes page, write us a five-star review, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. I don't know how we did it, but we went 40 minutes on a bunch of news that, like, I feel like is, like, usually wouldn't even fit in an episode of this podcast. Nothing news. Yeah. Yeah, I should call it that. The nothing news podcast episode of Slash Film Daily. We must be approaching 10,000 hours of this podcast because we're, wow. becoming, we're becoming masters at uh, stretching tiny news stories into <laughs> you know, padding it out with bullshit. Yes, just like Gru. Just like, just like Gru. <laughs>